Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read verse 17 through chapter 5, verse 2, this chunk of Scripture. Now, this text is about the old self versus the new self. The word that is literally used as self or anthropos, which is humanity. Um, and Paul talks about what it looks like to live under the old self. And then when we're in Christ, when we become a follower of Jesus, to live into a new self. And so the structure of our, our text today looks like this. It starts with Paul explaining what the old self was. He uses it under the moniker of living as a Gentile, their old self. And then he moves into what we've learned in Christ. Once we came to faith in Christ, what we've learned. And then finally, he gives a list of what the new self is, how we have to put off the old self and put on the new self. What are we putting off and what are we putting on? So that's kind of the structure. Um, when I read this, if this is the first time you're hearing this passage of Scripture, you might not agree with most of it. The tone of it, maybe, the perspective of it, the moral do's and don'ts, and that, that's okay. Just let it hit you. Just let it kind of, however you receive it, just receive it. Um, but we are a community of, of people, a, a, a community of Jesus followers who sit under these ta- texts and ask God to teach us and shape us to look more like this. We're not all there. We're all, we're all in process. We're all really like um, people that are messed up on our way to becoming what God has saved us to be. So that's, that's what we're going to be looking at today. So follow along with me, and then I'll pray for God to open up our hearts and minds. So verse, uh, verse 17, Paul says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God, Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. And do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for the building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That is God's word. It's beautiful. Let's pray. This morning, Lord, we are um, all... Uh, come before you as, as broken people that are being put together by you. And as we sit under this text this morning, 
I think all of us in some way feel inadequate, feel like we fall short, um, feel like there's a lot of stuff to take off, and we need to put on the new man, the new self, the new woman. And so I pray today that you'd give us the power by your spirit to do that, God. Help us to take off the things we need to take off and put on the new self. The new self that's been made in the likeness of you, God. The new self that you've given us, you've promised us in Christ. And show us, Lord, in ways that we are acting futile. Just the way that we've been living that's just so silly. Sober us up today. We, we, some of us that are a bit comfortable in our sin need to be... Need to be um, I don't know, rebuked sometimes in our sin, just by your spirit, just like, stop doing that. You need to be warned. And I know that that's all coming in love. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Your loving kindness that leads us to repentance. So speak the truth today to us in love. And use me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you are looking to be sad, let me suggest to you... Uh, an album. Um, Father John Misty, if you're familiar with this artist, his new album called Pure Comedy. Father John Misty, whose name is, his real name is uh, Josh Tillman, used to play drums for the band Fleet Foxes, who will be here at Outside Land soon. I can't wait. Um, this, but his new album, his new album is fatalistic, it's exhausting, it's devastating, but it's sonically soothing. Like you listen to it, you're, you're sonically soothed, just don't listen to the lyrics. Um, I was actually preparing a, a different illustration from this album for Easter, for my Easter sermon that got cut. I didn't, I didn't use it. So I had the album playing in my car during Holy Week. Um, and just listening to it, trying to gather this illustration I was trying to hunt down. And my Ash got in the car and we're driving. I forget where we were driving. And after like this, in the middle of the first song that, we were, that, was, that was on when she was in there, Ash, my wife, is real keen to lyrics, listens to music and can know what they're talking about and knows lyrics immediately like first listen. So she's halfway through it and she turns to me and she's like, what is this? What? Turn this off. I'm literally going dark with depression right now. You have to turn this off. I'm like, no, 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 wait, listen to what he's saying. And she's like, I, I am listening. That's why I'm saying turn it off right now. The, the, the title track, he sings about the meaninglessness of life that this life is so meaningless that this has to be some sick joke. And he calls it, it's so meaningless, it's got to be, com it's pure comedy. It's tragic comedy. There's no, this is, a, this is a gross joke, a sick joke, a joke a madman made up. In the second song, it's called Total Entertainment Forever. And he sings about our future. And again, it's sonically like a static, but the lyrics betray his music because he sings about a permanent party where our appetite for distraction has so eroded our souls that we can't wait to get all the chores done throughout our day so we can put on our virtual reality headgear and jump into bed with Taylor Swift. Like that's, that's where he says we're going. It's like a song from the future that writes back to us in the present and going, this is what you have to look forward to. Then he sings about, he sings this lyric, this line, where it's freedom, you have the freedom to have what you want. But he sings it in a tone that suggests that freedom doesn't really look like this. What I find interesting about this album is that most critics like the music, but they don't like the lyrics. They hate the uh, secular um, um, critics. They hate how self-indulgent and how sad his music is. The Pitchfork review ends with um, a nod to David Foster Wallace. They say that Tillman used a lot uh, of his source material for the album. 
But they said that at least as an artist, David Foster Wallace both depicted this world as a dark place, yet illuminated the possibilities of being alive and human in the world. But this redemptive spirit eludes Tillman. He doesn't ever get there. This is how the, the review ends, the Pitchfork Review. It's reasonable, um, it's reasonable to expect him to dream up something for us to really care about. He instead settles on soothing defeatism, a litany of conquered crises whose lessons amount to, quote, that's just the way it is. Given the album's thematic largesse, it's almost charming, almost. But you wonder what kind of progressive future he envisions, that which will lift society or merely flatter his own intellect. Now, what I think a lot of these reviewers that I was reading are saying about the album is that we don't really want to know how bad life is. Art should show us at least the beauty in the pain, at least some beauty in the midst of this pain. But I personally like this album. I like it because he's consistent. Father John Misty is consistent down to the core. He follows the trail of the argument that we as secular people make ourselves, and he comes to the conclusion, and he goes all the way back down to the darkest pit, and he comes back and he says, actually, there is nothing down there. See, if the only meaning you have in this life is to make meaning in this life, you're really doomed. I mean, you can't distract yourself by, you, you can actually, you can distract yourself by buying a house or getting a good job, or making money, or getting married, and buying a smartphone, and traveling to Italy, but it's all a big distraction. This is what he's saying. It's all just one big distraction, and our distractions are just getting better. We're getting better at, our, at distracting ourselves. If, in the end, we all just die, and that's it, then there's no true meaning at all, and this is all just madness. And there is no beauty in that. There's no real beauty. And you can't write about it in beauty because there's no beauty. And so what we do is we distract ourselves to death. We entertain ourselves to death. We elect people who we think will save us but never do any better. And it's madness. It's so mad, he says, this is something a madman would invent. It's pure comedy. That's why I like the album. I don't think Father John Misty is saying anything different than the Apostle Paul when he was referring to those who are outside of Jesus Christ. So you read the first part of this verse and that, the, that Paul, the Apostle Paul writes, and he's saying the same thing that Father John Misty is saying. Now, Father John Misty mocks religion in his whole album, mocks it. But they both agree. Father John Misty would say that it's the plight of humanity. This is the plight of humanity, pure comedy. The Apostle Paul would say it's the plight of humanity outside of Christ. And in this, they would both agree. Look at, what, look at how Paul says it. So I tell you this. And I want to insist on it in the Lord that you don't live like the Gentiles do. Again, Gentiles is a moniker for anyone outside of God. He says that to live that way, if you live outside of God, you're futile in your thinking. And then he describes them. He says they are darkened in their understanding and they're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts, having lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. They don't disagree. That seems dark because it is dark. See, no one wants to admit that life outside of God is really that bad. Pastors, I don't want to admit that to you, because you might come up to me and like, well, true, outside of God, it can't be that bad. But it is. It is that bad. Life outside of God is ultimately that bad. Even when secular artists admit it's that bad, critics will say, buddy, you have to lighten up. 
Like, we don't want to be told it's that bad. Now, how does it get that bad? How does Paul say it gets that bad? Well, first he says this. He says in verse 17 that it starts in our minds. The futility of their thinking. What Paul, that word futility is a meaninglessness. What Paul is saying is that apart from God, we have a way of viewing the world that is based on something meaningless in the end. We don't just want, we, 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 what we don't want to do, we don't want to follow this logic all the way to its end because we're too afraid of it. Because if you, if you actually sat down and wrote thing, all the things that bring you meaning in life apart from God, if you, were not, if you were outside of God, and you wrote down all the things in this life that give you meaning, if you follow those things logically all the way to the end, it's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. Example of this, um, in Timothy Keller's new recent book called Making Sense of God, he writes about humanistic morality. He says that most secular people today, we live in a very secular city, San Francisco, most secular people today also hold a set of ethical beliefs about the nature of human life. So uh, San Francisco is um, a secular town, but it also has a lot of ethical beliefs about the way humans should be treated. However, this is what Keller writes, where do these values come from? None of these humanistic moral standards can be proven empirically. And not only that, but they don't logically flow from a materialistic view of the world. So if you just took the logic to its end, the lo- how you think the world came to be, and you follow where it happens after, and you follow that logic, you do not get this. The, there is no way empirically that you can prove to treat each other ethically like the way that we do. He, then he quotes a, a, funny, a rather funny comment from a New York Times article about the meaning of life. He, 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 read the, the, he, he said he, wrote, he read this article in the New York Times about the meaning of life, and then someone made this comment under the, in the thread, and he quotes the comment, which I don't know if anyone's ever done that, but he's done it. <clears throat> he says this. This is the comment. When the Hubble Space Telescope pointed to a black spot in the sky about the size of an eraser head for a week, it found 30,000 galaxies over 13 billion years old with many trillions of stars and many, many more trillions of infrared planets. So how significant are you? You are, just a, you are not a unique snowflake. You are not special. You are just another piece of decaying matter on the compost pile of this world. Nothing of who you are and what you will do in this short time here will matter. Everything short of that realization is vanity. So celebrate life in every moment, admire its wonders, and love without reservation. Keller says that this is a very materialistic view of this life. You are just decaying matter in a universe of decaying matter. But then, he says, with the word so indicating a logical sequence, we are told that we should therefore live life of celebration and love. It does not make any logical sense at all. That is not consistent. You are just decaying matter. You came from matter. You're going to go to matter. Therefore, love. Like, whoa, wait. That doesn't make any logical sense at all. Then he quotes a Russian philosopher who sarcastically summarized the ethical reasoning of secular humanism like this. Man descended from apes. Therefore, we must love one another. It's absurd. It's futile thinking used as a distraction during your time on earth. And we don't, what we don't really want to do is deal with, the, with how real and consistent this logic, where it puts us in the end. If we did, if we really dealt with the, uh, the logic and, and, and 
took it to its end, we would end up with a soundtrack like Father John Misty's album. That's what we would end up with. And so Paul says, and the reason for that, what we, what, the way that we live now is that we give ourselves over to sensuality, verse 19. To give yourself over to what feels good right now. What feels good to you? If this is all there is, then the only thing left in life is just to feel good in the moment. You are just a creature that is trying to fill your way through this life with whatever gives you the most pleasure. So if, if pleasure is pain to you, and that's what makes you feel alive, then do it. If it's pain on yourself or pain on someone else, do it. Why, why, the, follow the logic. Why wouldn't you? Follow evolutionary logic. Why wouldn't you do that? If your pleasure is sex, then do it. If your pleasure is wealth, then do whatever you can to get it. If your pleasure is comfort, then by all means, smoke and drink and take pills and do whatever you can to feel comfortably numb. Do whatever. If your pleasure is distraction, then by all means, be on your phone all the time. And don't let anyone say that you're missing out on real life because they are too, just in a different way. So you are not more human if you put down your phone and go into the woods. Because if you follow the logic, without God, we all end up in the same place anyways. And I'm just choosing to do that on my phone, and you're doing that in the woods. It doesn't make any logical sense at all. Apart from God and life without God, life is futile. It's all meaningless. That is the logic, and most of us are too afraid of dealing with that. So here's the light. Now, if it got really ugly and dark, that's what, that's what Paul does, right? That's what he says right here. But look at the light in verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learn when you heard about Christ. What he's saying right away is that Christ, when you learn Christ, you learn different. There's something about Jesus that changes everything. That when you learn about Christ, you are taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus Christ. For those who have learned Jesus, and it's so weird. This is the first time in antiquity that, that, you could, that, that, that someone in, in, in Greek writing talked about learning a person. Like you learn a subject, a thing, but a per, you're learning a person. You're taking on the, yoke, the life and the meaning of a person. For those who have learned Jesus have learned a way of Jesus and, and are, are taught like a new truth. They're taught a new way of thinking, a new reality. And this view of Jesus challenges your whole view of the world and your whole view of yourself in the world. And what are we taught? We're taught three things. He breaks them up pretty simply in verses 22 through 24. Let's spend just a couple minutes here. Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former life. One, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Two, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. And three, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what Paul is saying, leave that scripture up for a second. What Paul is saying is that as a, what Christianity is, is learning about Jesus. As a Christian, you are in the school of Jesus. You are learning Christ. You are to take into your life the truth that is in Jesus. Now, the question is, what are those truths? Well, Paul breaks, breaks them down here in three basic things that we learn when we learn Jesus. He says, first off, when you learn Jesus, the first thing that you learn is you learn to put off your old self. You see that in, at, at the beginning of, of verse 22? Pulled off your old self. Now, that word self is anthropos, or where we, get the, like, where we get, use the word humanity. It's man. It's mankind. It's self. We have learned to take off our old humanity. The first thing that we learn when we, when we come to faith in Jesus, that we're actually laying aside who we once were, and we're stepping into who we are in Christ. 
We learn to take off our old humanity. Now, what does that mean? Our old humanity, our old self, is described as being corrupted by, the, the, by desires that deceive us. Do you see what he says there in verse 22? He says, you put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its evil or deceitful, rather, desires. Now, what does this mean? Most desires are not bad in and of themselves that we have. But the problem is that our desires that we do have deceive us. How so? Our desires trick us. Our desires that we have make us think they are in, in and of themselves. They make us think if we have the thing that we want, then I'll be happy. I'll be truly happy. And so we go after them. If I had this person, then I would be happy. If I had this other person, then I would be happy. If I got out of this commitment, then I would be happy. If I had this job, then I would be happy. If I had this career path versus this, their career, this career path, I would be happy. If I had this amount of money in the bank, then I would truly be happy. If I had this house or this experience, or if I, had, if I weighed this much versus this much, if I was more fit, if I was more artistic, if I was more accomplished, if I was more educated, if I was more attractive, if I was more respected, if I had that, those desires, we think, if I just get those things, then I will, I will have worth. I will have value. I will have meaning. And our desires trick us. And so we go after them. And sometimes it takes five years going after a desire, and we get it. Finally, we get it. Has anyone who's gone after something they've wanted for five years, ten years, and finally get it, are you going, my, li my life, it's it. I've done. I don't have to do anything else. I've, I'm totally content. I don't need, I don't want anything else. I don't think there's a person in the world who's done, I mean, conquered or done anything that goes, that's it. I'm done. Like, I, 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 I figured, our desires deceive us. We get the thing. We're like, oh, that was good. But it wasn't that good. I want, now I want something else. And we find out when we get our desires, they don't really give us meaning. Desires will never give you what you're looking for, which is really identity and meaning and worth. And so Paul says, and something actually brilliant here, he says, your desires actually deceive you. They trick you. They make you think that once you get them, or when you're going after them, that when you get them, they will give you meaning and worth, but then they don't. But then you keep going after new ones and new ones and new ones. So Paul says that the very definition of the old self is a lifelong pursuit of meaning driven by desires that are constantly tricking you and letting you down. That's, that's the old self. The old self is you going into pursuit of all these things that that, that you think will give you meaning, and then they keep tricking you and tricking you and tricking you. And someone might, and you might even actually be here because someone told you that you will actually find meaning in church, and you're here today because you're like, I I'm so sick of trying to find meaning in my life. I, I can't find it. I've done everything, and I'm giving this church thing a shot. And I pray that you wouldn't find church. I pray you would find Jesus. This is, what, this is what Paul says is, is real meaning. Our desires, unredeemed by Christ, our desires are actually killing us because they're sending us down roads that lead to nowhere. So like Solange sings in her song, Cranes in the Sky. Do you, that song is so good. <laughs> have you heard it? Of course you have. So I tried to drink it away. I tried to dance it away. I tried to change it with my hair. I ran my credit card bill up. I thought a new dress would make it better. I tried to work it away, but it just made me even sadder. I slept it away, sexed it away, read it away. 
but it doesn't go away, right? It doesn't lead to meaning. It doesn't. So Paul says that the first thing we learn about Jesus is that we can take off that old self. The first thing that, that if, if Christ is inviting you to anything, the first thing he's inviting you is to take off that old self and find meaning and receive identity that is not based on moving parts of your desires, but based in Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. That you can find meaning in Christ. Take off that old humanity. Now let me say this. If you've been in the church for, for a while, you're like, oh, I know this one. I know this point. Like, I know it. This is a good point. I know this one. I can, I can actually teach this part of the sermon right here. <laughs> yes, it's true. A lot of us in this room know this point. We know it. But right now, you might be wearing that old garment. You, might be, you put it back on. I mean, Paul is saying that, I mean, there's a possibility that we can take this stuff on and take it off. Paul's like, take it off and keep taking it off because that's not who you are. You might have put on the old garment again. Maybe it was just this week. And you put it back on again on those desires, those things that you wanted. And you're like, you know what? Uh, Christianity didn't really do the thing I was thinking it was going to do, so I'm going to go back to my old self and put this thing back on. And you put it back on. And you know where that road leads. You know it. So I'm going to ask you, again, to, to take off that old self. Paul says, take it off. Lay it aside. Those are grave clothes. You have no business wearing grave clothes. Take them off. That's the first thing we learn. But the second thing we learn is that we are made new. You see that? We're made new. You were taught that you to be made new in the attitude of your minds. The second thing we learn is that when we learn Christ, that we have been made new. This is, Christianity is not about, about be, becoming moral or becoming nice. It's about becoming new. You are new. Becoming a Christian is not simply a movement where, where you say like this like supernatural magic prayer and then go your way. Jesus is after something way bigger than that. Way bigger. He, he's after the, about the way you think about everything. He, he really sees you as a new humanity. Not to over-psychoanalyze everyone here, but we're all raised with ways that we see ourselves. Patterns of thinking about ourselves, our identity, the way we think when we think about our worth, our value, and our meaning. We're all, we all grow up with patterns of thinking about ourselves. And what Jesus does is he messes with all of that. He takes that off and he gives us a new identity a new way he wants you to think about yourself, a way he wants you to think about the world. And the, end, the thing is, is that you're flawed. You are flawed, and you do fail, and you fail a lot, and you make bad decisions. But because of Jesus, those things no longer define who you are. Christ defines who you are. You're in Christ. You're a new creation, and Jesus now defines who you are. He gives you worth. He gives you future, and he gives you hope, and he gives you eternity. He gives you that. He offers that to you. A quote that, that absolutely changed my life, impacted me so much that I, 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 wrote, uh, I wrote my first book about this quote. Like the whole book was about this one quote. And it's this. It's from Henry Nouwen, Life of the Beloved, still moves me, still transforms the way I think even now. He says, from the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, we are faced with the call to become who we are. The moment that we, that we claim the truth of being the beloved, like I, okay, I, 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 I accept the truth of I am the beloved of God. Okay, the moment we do that, the moment we become born again, saved, or become Christian, however you want to frame that, we then are now faced with the call of the rest of our Christian life to become who we are. Who are we? Loved by God. But we all operate out of, not out of belovedness of God. We all operate still out of our old self. We operate in small and big ways out of old identity, old patterns, old way of seeing ourselves, 
old ways of relating to others, all these old ways. And, and the whole call of the Christian life, if we were to break it down simply, is to learn a different way, to become who we already are in Christ. We're new to live out of that. We're beloved to live out of that. That's, that's the hope. See, the love of Christ for you is stronger than your sin. It's stronger than your addiction. It's stronger than your selfishness. The love of Christ for you is stronger than your failures. Because in Jesus' life and death and resurrection from the dead, he conquers all our sin and our death. And that no longer has the final word over us anymore. No longer is the the word over us condemnation. The word over us is newness in Christ. And And my identity, if I join myself with Jesus, a new self created to be the life of God in true righteousness and holiness is now the path before me. That's the third point. The third thing is this. He says, the third thing we learn about Christ, not only do we put off the old self, not only do we learn that we're made new, but we are now to put on a new self. So there's this taking off, being made new, and now clothing ourselves with newness to put on our new self. And this literally here is new humanity. And this should be the new mindset. I'm not a part of the old humanity anymore. That's not who I am. I'm not, those old clothes that I used to wear, those old grave clothes, those old garments are not who I am anymore. I am new in Christ. Now this section breaks out into one of Paul's famous therefore sections. And this is a description of the old self versus the new self. So I don't know how practical the beginning of that sermon was. Probably not that practical. But let me spend the next just a few minutes getting practical and really trying to pastorally speak into this congregation specifically. Because Paul says, once we've taken off the old self, we have to put on the new self, and it looks a certain way as it relates to the Christian community. And how does that look? Well, first it says this. Verse 25. Each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. So what do we have to take off? Take off lying. Church, The most common forms of lying are subtle embellishments, false representations of who we are to other people. Stop doing that. Stop lying. Stop lying about yourself. Stop lying to yourself. Stop lying about other people. What lying is, it's presenting a view of myself that's not based on truth. Lying is is perception management because we're afraid of others knowing who we really are, and so we, we, we lie. We don't want other people to know how we misbehave, what we do when no one else is around. Like when they ask us a question, we we like to sound a little bit more spiritual, a little bit more honest, a little bit stronger, right? Or if the occasion calls for a little bit more humble than we were at at that time when when that thing happened. Like you, I was there, you weren't that humble. You lost, that was it, you lost, you didn't didn't give up, you lost, Um, whatever. And we, we lie. We do that because it's perception management. I don't want people to know that about me. I, I, and so what I do is I, I, I put up a front. And I, I say these things that are not true about who I am. See, the thing is, is the cross has already spoken the truth of who you are. You're flawed. You're morally compromised. You're selfish. And that's why Jesus had to die for you. Like the cross says that all. The cross says you need, you need redemption. And we, now we can be honest, like, I need redemption. I'm still in process of redemption. So start speaking truthfully. Start speaking truthfully about your work. Start speaking truthfully about who you, who you are and the mistakes you've made. 
And, and when you speak truthfully about someone else, speak the truth in love. Remember, we learned that last week. Speak the truth in love. So speak truth. And maybe one day we won't have to say, so let me be honest. Because we're always honest. We don't have to say that. Like, let me, just, let me be, just let me be real. Let me be honest. Like, you, one day you won't have to say that. One day you'll be like, let me say something. And people will go, he's being honest. This person's always honest. So take off lying. Take it off. Put on speaking the truth. Okay, take off anger. Look at the next two verses, 26, 27. In your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Take off anger. Put on reconciliation. Now, he doesn't use the word reconciliation, but that's the meaning of don't let the sun go down while you're angry, meaning make it right before, make it right. Now, you don't have to take that literally. Like, okay, what if I get angry at night? I'm, 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 I'm messed up. I can't, can't do anything. If the sun's already down and I got angry, like it's not literal, okay? It's, it's like make it right. Repent of your anger. Okay, so notice first he doesn't say don't get angry. He says in your anger, don't sin. In your anger, make sure it doesn't result in sin, See, anger is emotional energy that powers you up to protect something or someone, right? Most time, our anger is protecting ourselves, And we get angry when we're wrong and we have to defend ourselves and our, our, maybe even our false image of who we think we are, and so we get angry. But not all anger is bad. So we have to ask ourselves, what am I protecting as I'm getting angry? What am I protecting? And then, how do I channel this emotional energy? Will I do it in a way that brings resolution and reconciliation or in a way that brings more damage? How am I going to channel my anger? In my anger, do not sin. And if I do get angry to the point of sinning, then I'm going to make it right. I'm going to make it right. I'm going to reconcile with him or her. In your anger, do not sin. When we do sin in our anger, now here's the warning, you guys. When we sin in our anger spiritual powers are introduced into the situation that creates rifts in the Jesus community. This is what he says. Do not, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And he says also, and do not give the devil a foothold. Listen, your anger can introduce spiritual like powers into this, into this church community that causes rifts that might take years to undo. Years. In your anger, do not sin. If you are sinning through your anger in this church, repent. You are introducing in this community satanic footholds. That we, we, we will, as a church, get stopped. We will never, we'll never progress as a church. We'll just get stuck. We'll, we'll be held down and anchored down and it'll feel like we're not moving into the life that Christ has for us because in our anger we're sinning. We don't know what to do with our anger, and so we're sinning against each other, and Satan's just grabbing, and he has all these, a hold on most of us, and we can't progress in a Christian life anymore. You guys, if we have anger, let's repent of it. If we have anger, let's repent before God and then before one another, and then let's not use our anger to sin. These are angry times we're living in. We live in times where almost any day you can get really, really angry just by hearing stuff. In your anger, don't sin. Verse 28, he says, anyone who has been stealing, still no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they can give to people who have need. Take off stealing. Put on useful work and generosity. See, this is what stealing is. Stealing is when, like, I, I, I want something or I need something. 
but I can't legitimately get that something, but I deserve that something. Therefore, I'll do what it takes to get that something, even though it belongs to someone else. Old humanity places me and my desires at the center of everything so that I, it makes me want to go and get everything at all costs, anything that I think I deserve or I want. But the new humanity places Jesus at the center, and my life is no longer my own. Jesus died for me. Everything that I have is for the benefit of others. My whole, all, everything I make, everything I own is not for myself. It's for the Jesus community. Like imagine your home, like I have this home, but it's for the church. I have this money, but it's not my own. It's for the church. Like not, not, not the institution of the church, but like the body of Christ, this, across the aisles, across the rows, across the balcony. Like it's that. It's, that's what it's for. That we, we, we no longer steal. We actually work hard with our hands. And so that we could look around at, at our community group and look around at our, at our community and go, who needs help? I want to help you. Verse 29 and 30, this is almost done. I don't even know. Oh, my gosh. Okay, 29 and 30. Um, yeah, verse 29. It says this. Do not let any, oh, gosh, this is such a good one. Sorry, this is going to take a minute. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen and do not grieve the Spirit of God. Listen. Take off. The word there, unwholesome, is the word rotten. It means something that's rot and that will rot. So, like a rotten, rotten speech that comes out of your mouth, and then when it gets into the hearer's ears, it rots their mind. Wow. And then it rots their speech, and then they go, and then they do the same thing, and it rots the community. So what Paul is saying is take off rotten speech, which rots the minds and the hearts of those you speak to. So what this is is gossip. This is divisive language. This is off-color jokes and comments. This is talking about someone in such a way that erodes our confidence in them to be what God has created them to be. This is racist language. This is sexist language. This is talking about another brother or sister in a way that is sexual or mean or nasty. You are not allowed to talk about people in this community in such a way. You are not allowed to do that. It rots this community to its core, if you have divisive speech and you are sowing little divisive language, you're like, you know what I heard? You know what I heard? You know what I heard? That's rotten. You're like, but you know, but I'm, I'm processing. Listen. <laughs> we, have, we have this therapeutic community. We have a therapeutic generation where we're just like, we, all, we, want to we need to process. I need to process this. If you're, if you're processing rots the community, you will never get around that before God. You'll not say before God, well, yeah, God, I ruined a whole church, but I was processing. He's like, oh, you were? Oh, my bad. I'm sorry. I know I said, don't do that, but you know what? You had an excuse. You could do that. He, you'll, never get, you'll never get away with that, ever. You're not allowed to do that. You are not allowed to talk about people in such a way that introduces rottenness in this community. And if you're doing that, you need to stop doing that. This community is a community of people who have been remade around the story of God's grace and rest restoration and forgiveness. Why would you even talk that way? Who taught you that? Not Jesus. That's not the way of Jesus. Someone else taught you that, whether it's language on Twitter or language on news or language on social, somewhere taught you that, but that's not the way you act here. That is not the way you act in the Jesus community. That language is not allowed here. And if someone is coming up to you and saying, you know what I heard, I need you to pray for so-and-so, like, whoa, whoa, wait. 
a prayer request that's gossip is still gossip. Like, even if you say, you know, the Jesus stuff, like, let's pray for so-and-so because, and then gossip, 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 gossip. <laughs> like, that is, that is such, that's, the other person needs to go, stop, that's gossip. That's just, and that's rotten. Your breath stinks. Not like your real breath, but like your language. It smells. That's not the way we, we talk about each other in the Jesus community. When we speak in a way that introduces rottenness in the community, not only does it introduce rottenness in the community, but it grieves the Spirit of God. Okay, so our anger will give Satan a foothold in our church, and our rotten speech will grieve God's Spirit. Like when we, when we let go of rotten speech in this church, the Spirit of God is like, ow, that, that makes me sad. That makes me very, very sad sad. It grieves the Spirit of God. And when we grieve the Spirit of God, we're like one step away from like quenching the Spirit of God. And then when you quench the Spirit of God, that, th- that thing that we all love about the community here is gone like that. It's gone. You've, I don't know if you've ever been a, church, a part of a church that has lost the essence of the Spirit of God because of words of anger, of resentment, of bitterness, of rotten speech. It, go, it can go away within, it can go away really fast. So stop doing that. Take off that language. Put on language that is a gift to people. Put on language that after they've left talking to you, they're like, that was such a gift. That was such a gift. I love talking to that person. I love it. Because I feel like I was built up. Do you see that? Like, get rid of, get rid of that. Only use speech that benefits those who listen that you build others up. If you and I would focus on using language that would build people up, that they would leave encouraged, meaning filled with courage, to continue to walk in the way of Jesus when they leave conversation with you. That's the, that's the hope of the Jesus community. Verse 31 32. Now get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ has forgiven you. Now, look at the last, the motivation of all this. This is taking off harboring destructive behavior. Take it off. Put on compassion that leads to forgiveness. Why? Because Christ has forgiven you. Like, this needs to shift in our mind. You you realize that before God, you were a sinner saved by grace. You are not allowed to go and spread and become, like, angry and bitter and brawling and slander because you were saved from those things by Christ's own death. And so this community of people that live under Jesus now behave in a different way. And then Paul ends like he begins. See, Paul appeals to who we are. That's what he does at the very beginning. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live like Gentiles do. The thing, the problem is that they are Gentiles. He's writing to a Gentile congregation. So it would be like if Paul wrote to us and he says, I want to tell you this and I insist on it in the Lord that you no longer live like Americans do. And you're like, wait, I'm American. Paul says, nah, you're more Christian than you are American. You are more in Christ than you are as a Gentile. Christ has redone your ethnic identity in a way. He has redone your gender identity in a way. He has redone everything to where the most important thing and the truest thing about you is not your gender ethnicity, anything. It's that you're in Christ. That's the first thing. And that we're all in Christ together. That's not who you don't, don't live like that anymore. You live like a Jesus 
follower. You live like a community of people following Jesus. That's how you live. So in verse, in verse 1 in chapter 5, he says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. He's saying, be who you are. You are dearly loved children. Now live that way. Live a life of love because Christ loved us. Be who you are. That's what he's saying. The second that you accepted life in the beloved, the call of your life is to become who you are. This is what Paul is saying here. Now, you are dearly loved, now love. And he ends where he begins. This is who you are. You are the beloved of God, therefore be who you are. Live a life of love because you are loved. This, the only motivation that we have for this like, I can come up here and, and tell you what to do, and there's some way in the Christian community that we kind of like being told what to do. We like, like that. Um, and I think it's needed. I mean, Paul does it here. It's needed. But whenever we're told what to do, it always comes out of who we are. So Paul doesn't say, I want you to speak well, and I want you to not get angry. He's not telling us to do something that we are not. He's saying, be who you are. You are loved by God. You are accepted by God. Now be who you are, and who you are allows you to live this way. So when we speak of ways that are wholesome, that's who we are. When we put on love, that's who we are. When we speak truthfully, it's who we are. When we deal with anger righteously, it's because that's who we are. When we work and give out of what we have, it's because that's who we are. Paul is saying, this is who you are, now live that way. And so church... I, I want, I want to, to emphasize the life that we have in God is new and also is, is practice of taking off and putting on. And so today, let's practice this together. There are things that we need to repent of, people that we might need to text right now, call on the phone right now, people that we need to make, make, make it right with. People that we need to forgive in our own hearts that they don't know what they did, but they might, they might have passed away and we can't get a hold of them. And so we need to forgive them in our hearts. There are people that we're not even in contact anymore that we've done something to or that did something against us and we've harbored bitterness and we need to bring that to God and let that go. And then we need to take on to put on love. So we have this practice as a church to kneel. I think this is a good practice. What we do today, what I want us to do together as a community, and there might be a lot of us that are doing this, and that's okay, that we kneel as sinners and we stand righteous. You might need to, you might need to feel that in your body because you, you need that. You need to go, I need to stand and confess old self by kneeling, and then I want to stand new self righteous. I need to feel that in my body, and, and I want to invite you to do that as we move into our second set of worship. Let's pray. Lord, God, would you please help us right now bring to the surface those ways uh, that we have trusted in the old self, that we've put the old self on. We slipped it on like an old, old hat, old shoe, an old jacket. It's so worn in and we just like, oh, I, I love the feel of this thing. But it's old. It's not who we are anymore. But we put it on. We put it on this last week. We put on anger and gossip and bitterness. We've put this stuff on and we just say, God, we don't want it. It stinks. It smells. It's putrid. It rots this community and we don't want that. I pray that these, um, those that are sitting in these chairs that belong to this church, that belong to community group, that belong to this community, 
that they would feel right now the weight of their, their responsibility to this community. That when they are angry and sin, it introduces satanic footholds in this church, and they would feel that because it's true. God, we are all responsible for one another. And when we, when we have rotten speech, it grieves the Spirit of God for all of us. I pray that we just sit with that for a second and realize that we're not just autonomous self floating out and our consequences don't matter to the person sitting next to us, but they do. They do. And so, Lord, where I have been angry and sinned, would you forgive me? And where I have allowed putrid gossip from my mouth into any ears in this church, would you forgive me? God, I'm sorry. Please don't be, be you might be grieved by your sin, but be, but, but be like pleasured through our repentance. Come near us. Be attracted to it now as we repent. Be attracted to our hearts saying our hearts are broken and contrite and we're sorry for our sin, God. And for those that maybe at the very first part of the sermon they were really paying attention because they feel like they've been chasing after meaning and they don't have it, I pray they would come to find Christ today and find meaning. In Jesus' name, amen.